Our, our reading this morning is from Luke's Gospel, page 1035, Luke 7, beginning at verse 36. Luke 7, beginning at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt, forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever who has been forgiven, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Good morning. I'm Colin. Hello. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, Please uh, use um, this talk now to help illuminate it. Please have us only learn what you would have us learn and be changed, how you'd have us be changed by your living word. Amen. So, I'm not from around here. I'm from a place called Manchester in England. But when we moved to Adelaide... Nine years, nine and a bit years ago, we were just blown away by what a what a great city Adelaide is. I mean, Manchester's a great city, don't get me wrong, but Adelaide. So we were really surprised when people kept asking us all the time, 
Why did you choose Adelaide to live in? Why Adelaide? As if to say, why on earth would you want to live in Adelaide? So over time I've developed the answer, well, what is it that you don't like about Adelaide that that you think should have put us off? Is it the lack of congestion? Is it the pristine coastline? Is it the world-class wine regions with an easy reach? Is that what should put us off? Is it the relatively cheaper housing? Is it the vibrant arts scene? Just what is it that you think should have put us off Adelaide? But then I came to realize that it's only people from Adelaide that don't appreciate it. So just to give you some um, perspective, here's a photo of what was next to my high school. Okay, this is uh, Europe's biggest housing project at the time. It's also Europe's worst housing project. It's in a place called Hume. There's something like 3,800 homes in these awful concrete crescents. This is where we used to do cross-country running. We were pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) Just for some uh, contrast, there's another picture, I think. Have another one? Yeah. Fairly typical. Um, That was around school. Next one, just for some perspective, this is from Shani's baptism. Why would you want to live in Adelaide? (laughs) See, it's only if you've lived somewhere else that has less that you really appreciate how how much we have here. So I really love Adelaide because it has given me much. Well, that's two different appreciations of this city. But in today's passage, we meet two people, two different people. One who knows they are forgiven much and so loves much. And the other who doesn't see the need for forgiveness and so doesn't see a need to love. So it's a great report Luke gives us here to help us be certain about Jesus. Because I reckon in these two people, absolutely every one of us is represented. We either know we need forgiveness and love Jesus for giving it to us, or we don't and we don't really care about Jesus. And this story is like a gateway. We can take ourselves through this story and be completely changed, never to be the same again. Or not, we can stay the same. Sunny beach or crusty concrete crescent. So we're in this series in Luke's Gospel, Finding Life, Following Jesus. Um, Luke's eyewitness collection of eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And Jesus has declared that in him, the kingdom of God has arrived. We've seen his authority in, in healing and teaching, in forgiving sins, calling disciples. And last week, we start to look at the, see the, start to see the scope of what it means that Jesus has come to save. That ultimately, he will, have, he will save all creation from the effects of God's deserved judgment, taking away disease and death and sin. And Jesus has been clear that whether or not people, um, whether people reject him or not, isn't down to intellectual reason or logic. It's down to whether we will repent or not. Whether we will stop rebelling against God by living life ignoring him or not. And so today's bit of the documentary takes us to the very essence of salvation, that is being saved 
by showing us an example of each of those responses. And it all starts with an incident at dinner that takes us to the heart of the problem, that first point. So we've got Simon the Pharisee, and he's decided to put on a fancy dinner. He's invited Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus is probably pretty, fa- is pretty famous by now. Um, so Simon's probably pretty impressed with himself getting the big name at his house. And as we join the scene, Jesus is settled in, reclining at the table. So that sounds weird, but the custom was that the table was at about bench height. And you would sort of, you wouldn't sit on a chair, you'd lean in to it with your legs out behind you. So kind of recline on the floor. So your head's near the table, legs out behind you. And into this scene comes a woman, verse 37. So keep your Bibles open, we'll keep going through the passage. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. A woman who lived a sinful life. So when you read that, what, kind, what, what do you reckon she'd been up to? She'd lived a sinful life. I think most of us probably jump to the conclusion that it's some sort of sexual sin. Don't we? This woman of the night sort of thing. But I wonder if that reveals in us a touch of the Pharisee. That without even thinking about it, we immediately conveniently categorize her as something other to ourselves, a special category of sinner. But the text itself in the Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe she was a con artist or an unscrupulous landlady or something. And I think it's... Luke's given us eyewitness accounts, and if that, that's what he's got to go on, it stands to reason that there should be some gaps in the detail. So let's not overreach. We don't know what, what she would done wrong, but we do know that her life could be characterized as sinful. She's come to see Jesus with the express intent of showing her gratitude to him. So she brings along something to anoint Jesus with. So she doesn't bring in the usual black and gold, cheapo olive oil that was usually used. But she brought along really expensive, uh, really precious luxury perfume. Maybe it was was like a 16th birthday present. She was supposed to save it for a honeymoon or something. And look how she delivers her gift. It's not in a ceremonial, polite way. It's with a heart and a sleeve. Look at the detail Luke gives us. Verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. I mean, how much must she have been crying to wet Jesus' feet with her tears? How close to him must she have been? How heartfelt must must her emotion have been to, to overcome all the social etiquette and to approach Jesus like this. I mean, she wipes her feet, his feet with her hair. In cultures like hers, and, and we get them around the world today, where hair is covered, do you know why? It's, it's because a woman's hair is considered to be one of the most beautiful things about her. So, so much so that she's usually just reserved for a husband. When Sharon was pregnant with Owen, Sorry, it's not a little birth story, Sharon, it's fine. When Sharon was pregnant with Owen, um, we were waiting to see the obstetrician in the antenatal I was freaked out, because in the waiting room, there's all these ladies with absolutely identical hair. It's like Stepford Wives or something. 
But it was only later a Jewish colleague of mine told me that it's because they were from a particular sect of Orthodox Jews who all wore wigs because only their husbands were allowed to see their hair. That can, that's the kind of thing. So the woman's drying Jesus' feet with the hair and kissing his feet. It's, it's intimate. She's trusting. She's, she's opening up to him. She pours out the depth of love in her heart just as she pours out a perfume. So if everyone was trying to politely pretend she wasn't there, you know, it's a bit embarrassing this, well, they couldn't anymore because the aroma of dinner is suddenly overwhelmed with a new fragrance. You're in David Jones' food court and you just walk into the perfume department. You can smell it, can't you? Simon certainly noticed that. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. She, that she is a sinner. In other words, if this man really is, Jesus really is from God, he would know this woman has done so much wrong. And so he shouldn't let her near him. Conclusion, Jesus can't be a man of God. But behind Simon's thinking, there lies the heart of the problem. That is, how can a holy God have anything to do with sinners? How can God, who is perfectly pure and good, without evil, without malice, completely untainted, how can he have anything to do with sinners, with those who rebel against him and his ways, those who live for themselves rather than for God, and all the terrible hurt and pain and injustice that that brings? How can Jesus, supposedly God's flesh and blood representative, let this flesh and blood representative ungodliness in this woman touch him? I mean, Simon the Pharisee, he would have known intimately Israel's um, laws around what's clean and unclean, pure and impure, the sacrificial system. And it all served as a kind of a, if you look at Leviticus and Exodus, it's kind of like a buffer zone to allow God, to allow people to, to live near God's being more present, uh, being tangibly present. Uh, always a reminder, constant reminder of the otherness, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of every person ever. We can all see that there's heaps wrong about humanity and we only have to search our hearts, our thoughts and actions a little to know that there's much wrong with what we have done. So how do we deal with that tension that God is good and we're not? Well, in these two people, we see two ways to respond. We can live like Simon, who kind of glosses over his own sin. He does his best to obey the rules to convince himself and anyone watching that he's good enough, good enough to be near to God. And a bit of occasional compare and contrast makes us feel good about ourselves, doesn't it? I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as her. But there's always that niggling doubt. I'm a good enough. That's one way to live. Or we can be like the woman who knows she's entirely dependent on God's mercy and thanks Jesus with all that she is for bringing it to her. So more of her shortly. But first, our second point, Jesus gives Simon a reality check. A reality check. Jesus 
shows how the real actions of Simon and the real actions of the woman reveal the real state of their hearts. Their real actions reveal the real state of their hearts. So Jesus starts it with a, a parable that helps Simon to see who is the one in the room who really has the problem. Verse 41. Uh, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. So 50 denarii was about two months' wages. So 500 is uh, a year and three quarters. Uh, we Australians understand debt, don't we? In fact, we understand debt more than the most, most of the world because Australian households have the fifth highest debt level in the world. And our debt hasn't risen slowly. Uh, accounting for inflation, in real terms, the average Australian household debt has risen from 60,000. There's another slide, thanks, Elio. Uh, debt has risen from 60,000 in 88 to 245,000 in 2016. It's eye-watering levels of debt, isn't it? Debt. So each part of the parable of Jesus' parable has a parallel. Try saying that, that's hard to Each parable has a parallel. We've got two levels of sinner. So the 50 denarii debtor, sort of sinner-like, representing Simon. And then we've got the uber sinner, the 500 denarii debtor, representing the woman. But the really surprising one in this parable is the money lender, who represents God. Verse 42. Neither of them had, any, had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. See, God is right and just to be against us in our sin. But by sheer grace... He's willing and able to cancel the debt sin puts us in. So that verb there for forgiving the debt, karitsamai, that was just a common business term for cancelling debt. And it's the same word it's used later in the Bible for God's freely given grace. Places like Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving, same word again, each other, just as in Christ God forgave you, forgave, same word again. So Jesus asked Simon, verse 42, now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. You know, Jesus is gentle with Simon, isn't he? He's not condemning, not judgmental. But Simon thinks that the talking point of his dinner party will be just how, this, how sinful this woman was who turned up. And Jesus is correcting him to see that the talking point of his dinner party is how how much he's been forgiven. And the response that it prompts in her, the real talking part of this dinner party, is how even the worst of us can be transformed, released from our debt, knowing peace with God. The woman understands the size of her debt And so her outward, real response to it being cancelled is love. Simon, the Pharisee, has no appreciation of his own debt. He's more concerned with detailing the bill of what others owe. So his real outward response is in keeping with the state of his heart. Verse 44. Then Jesus turned towards the woman and said to Simon, 
Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. The basic social etiquette um, in this story, for if you had dinner guests, was to wash their feet, uh, greet them with a kiss, and anoint their head with a little olive oil. So that was in, uh, in England, the basic social etiquette. It's a cup of tea. You have a cup of tea when you're arriving, a cup of tea just before you leave, and roughly, roughly every half hour in between. Okay. <laughs> Not just if you're thirsty, you just have it anyway. But Simon, he'd revealed his lack of care for Jesus. in not even covering the basics. See, his hospitality is conditional. Is there something in it for me? But the woman's hospitality is over and above. It's excessive. It's excessive as she can make it. Why does she respond like this? Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. See, she's aware of just how much debt has been cancelled. And this transforms her with great love for Jesus, who brings her forgiveness. Simon has little appreciation, and so little love. See, in Jesus, God offers this great forgiveness to cancel our debts of sin. He offers it to everyone. And if we realize our debt, if we grab hold of God's grace, simply receive what Jesus offers us, realizing how much he has done to pay our debt, will respond with, in love. If you've never accepted Jesus' forgiveness, is it because you don't see yourself as in debt? See, your or my biography might not, the headline might not be, lived a sinful life. But our reality check is this, that all of us have fallen short of what we were made for. All of us have fallen short of loving God with all our hearts, all our soul all our strength and all our mind. We all have a debt that needs dealing with. We all have sins that need forgiving. Or maybe if you are a Christian, you've, maybe you've lost that kind of feeling for Jesus that would make you respond like this woman. Could it be those feelings are dulled because you've lost sight of just how much debt has been cancelled? And how much it cost Jesus. Jesus didn't separate himself from sinners like this woman. From sinners like all of us. Jesus came in person to pay off our debt. Soon in Luke's gospel, he'll set out for Jerusalem, about 100 miles away. Every step, knowing that he's walking towards suffering and dying in our place to pay off our debt forever. So I encourage you to stay accountable to one another in fellowship with one another. I encourage you to read the whole counsel of the Bible to see just how seriously God takes sin. Not to paralyze us with guilt, but to keep bringing ourselves into repentance, to keep appreciating the size of the debt 
that Jesus has already paid for us and loving him for bringing us that forgiveness. And to help us appreciate our final point that Jesus is the man who can. The man who can. See, Jesus is qualified to forgive our debt of sin because of who he is. And faith in him is receiving the forgiveness he offers. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. So any grammar nerds that your sins are forgiven, that's in the perfect tense. In other words, it's a done deal. It's her present status. And the gravity of what Jesus just said, it hasn't got past the other dinner guests. Verse 49, the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this? Only God can forgive sins. Who is this? Look back over those first chapters of Luke's gospel. Jesus' authority in teaching, his authority over evil, over disease, over death. All show us that he is God the Son, God's warrior king, come to bring salvation through the forgiveness of sins. The woman is forgiven. It's already done. But she hasn't earned this forgiveness through her tears or her perfume or her hair or anything else. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, we're going to have the AGM after this. And uh, one of the things, when you turn up at an AGM, you are sort of agreeing that you go along with the 39 articles, which are just really, really pithy statements. There's one here about what Jesus is talking about. Justification by faith. Article 11, we are accounted righteous before God. Only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, by faith, and not for our own works or merit. We are justified by faith only in, only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, so more largely is expressed in the humility of justification. Yeah, I don't know what the last sentence means, but justification by faith. <laughs> so it's not that her faith is a work, that the, 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 the credit is to her faith, Somehow, that her faith somehow earns a forgiveness. It's, if you think of a marble statue, I've got a slide here, thanks, Elio. Think of a marble statue. That's the clean version. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the artist, the sculptor, takes the block of marble and he sculpts it into a form using a hammer and chisel. So the hammer and the chisel are the, the conduit, if you like. But nobody goes around saying, oh, look at. This, this uh, statue of David, wasn't the hammer and chisel great? It's the, sculpture, the sculptor who makes the statue detail perfect. So the woman's faith, our faith, is like the, the hammer and chisel, chisel, the conduit through which Jesus pays our debt, passes on the forgiveness of sins that he has won for us. It's only by faith in Jesus that we can have our debt fully and certainly paid, our sin forgiven. Only Jesus can bring us peace with God, reconciled to him in right relationship, given the final verdict of all debts paid, nothing owing, just the desire to respond to him in loving gratitude. This is the essence of salvation. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace.
There's a couple of, few, I could think of loads of application from this passage. I don't want to distract from that, that your faith in Jesus saves you. But um, just a couple. Firstly, notice how bold and inhabited and uninhibited the woman was in worshipping Jesus. She didn't care about um, what labels the dinner guests wanted to stick on her. All she knew was that Jesus had forgiven her sins and she loved him for it. That was her identity now, forgiven by Jesus. So as you face pressure from the world to conform, to measure up to the impossible oppressive standards that it sets for you, to keep quiet about Jesus, just remember that your identity is in Jesus. And that's all that really matters. You can be bold like this woman, not defined by what everybody else says you are, but by what Jesus says that you are. Forgiven, at peace with God. Uh, When Sharon was first converted, who did she go to for help? Who helped make sure that that seed of the gospel was not snatched away? It was a friend from school, Jane, also known as Bible Bastard Jane, Crazy Christian God Squad Jane. Did those names matter? No. Did it matter Sharon could see that Jane was different, loving Jesus? Yes. Uh, Secondly, a word about the woman's hospitality. The woman showed Jesus great hospitality, demonstrating her great love. But it wasn't orderly. She didn't have it all together. It was visceral. It was from the heart. So don't wait until you feel like you've got it all together before showing your love of Jesus in love of others. Simon was so concerned about everything being all present and correct that he neglected even the basic courtesy to Jesus. Uh, I'm not saying everybody needs to become all gushy and emotional. You know, I'm English, uh, a male, and a middle-aged. So the, the chances, the odds are get stacked against me making a display of emotion like this woman. But even people like me can find ways of expressing the love of Jesus by serving him and loving others. So yes, we all, like the woman, could be labelled, lived a sinful life. And if you are struggling with, uh, with sin at the moment, pray about it and, and ask Christians around you for help. Our debt is indeed great. But Jesus has gone all the way to suffering and dying on the cross to bring us forgiveness. Our debt is paid. And with much forgiveness comes much love. Ask Jesus to keep you uh, growing in your love of him and finding ways of expressing that love. So the woman began this story with the label, lived a sinful life. She ends the story labeled, your sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen.